my name's Kevin, and I'm one of the pastors here. And as the giving buckets make their way around, this is the time in our service where we collect uh, tithes and offerings. If you're visiting with us, we don't want you to feel any pressure to give whatsoever. This is something for those who call this church their home. If you do call this church your home, I want to remind you that we have about one week left in the year-end giving campaign, and I wanted to give you an update because I have good news. Uh, We still have a week left, which is when typically a lot of the gifts come in, and we're already over halfway to our $150,000 goal. So that's it's about $80,000 so far. Uh, and so we just want to encourage you to keep praying about that and thinking through it. And if you can give $20, $200 or more, but just to take part in this with us. I also want to let you know that at the four o'clock service tonight, we'll take up an offering and all of the money collected there will go towards this campaign. So really glad that you've joined us. Uh, Let me pray as we prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Father, we come to you this morning celebrating news that, that breaks, it breaks the seams of our imaginations that you have come, that you who are eternal and holy and majesty and incomprehensible, you've come and you've become vulnerable killable, touchable, that you, you who are the ideal, you became real. And so as we come to your word this morning, and as we try to wrap our minds around this major truth, this major claim, and as we try to wrap our hearts around what it means for us today, this week, I pray that your spirit would move in our midst, that he would bring conviction where our hearts have grown cold to you or turned from you. He would bring comfort where we're discouraged, where we're weary, more than anything, that we would leave here with a clearer vision of who you are, what you've done, and the hope that you've brought us so that we, we can move forward in life with hope and with joy and with strength. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's scripture is from Luke 1, 46 through 55. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm grateful for the opportunity to gather this morning, grateful for the way the calendar worked out this year, that we can be together on Christmas Eve, uh, Christmas Eve morning, and that we could have a few minutes just to slow down. Uh, this is a crazy, hectic time for a lot of us. I know we, we all come in here and we've just got a lot. I can feel it in the room. We have a lot stirring in our hearts and in our minds. We've got presents left to wrap. Anyone besides me? Uh, if you've got little kids, you probably have a whole lot of things that you've got to build in the next 24 to 48 hours. We've got travel plans. And so it's good to be able to get together and just slow down for a minute and reflect on what God has said and what God has done 
As many of you know, my wife and I, we have four kids and we have a fifth on the way, which means our normal is crazy and our crazy is absolutely absurd. Our oldest is nine, our youngest right now is three. And so in this craziness, holiday just makes it, holidays make it extra crazy. And in a few days, we're going to go to Ohio and we're going to visit with my mom. And my mom's a widow and she lives alone. And so when when our clan rolls into town, it's like a small army invading her house. And inevitably what happens is we kind of all roll in and she has two little dogs and my kids are terrified of dogs like you wouldn't believe. And so we roll in and I'm unpacking and inevitably what happens is one of our kids starts screaming or crying or moaning or wailing, something along those lines, because that's the soundtrack that's constantly playing in the background of our house. It's just, it's, that's what you get with little kids. And so my kids will start crying and screaming and I'll be unloading things. Then I'll be talking with my mom and my mom will get very, very concerned. And she'll say, hey, is everything okay with Everly? It's usually who it is. It's, it's her youngest. Should we check on her? And I won't even know what she's talking about. I'll say, what do you mean? Is everything okay? And she said, well, she's, she's screaming bloody murder. And I'm not kidding. More times than I can count. I'm like, she is? I didn't even notice. Any other parents ever been there? Like you, you hear it enough and you know how to just drown it out. And don't get me wrong, like as parents, if you've, you've had little kids, you know that there are levels of crying. Uh, and so code yellow and below, we know how to drown out. If you hear that kind of weird pitch that means code red, that's when you step in. Uh, but we, we all have these things in life, parents especially with kids crying, but we have other things that, that we become desensitized to that we know how to drown out. Maybe it's a funny sound that your car started making and when you first heard it, it kind of freaked you out but you just kept driving and your car keeps working and so now you've just grown accustomed to it. Maybe it's the, the dinging that happens when you start your car up because you're obstinate and you refuse to wear a seatbelt. And other people get in the car and they say, hey, what's that dinging? And you're not even aware of it because you've just become desensitized to it. Like we all have things that we hear them enough, we become desensitized. We drown them out. And this morning we're finishing up our Mothers of Jesus series by looking at the mother of Jesus, looking at Mary. And I'll confess that preparing this sermon is more challenging than the previous sermons. Because the previous sermons, the previous stories that we've looked at, they're new and they're strange and they're confusing. This story, we all kind of know. We all have some idea of what happened with the teenage girl Mary when the angel came to her. And, and I think because we kind of know what it says, a lot of times we can't actually hear the magnitude of what the scripture is actually saying to us, what the claim is here. And so what I want to do with you this morning is instead of looking at Mary's story, I want to look at her song. It's a very famous song. It's the first Christmas carol ever written, and it's a masterpiece. It's magnificent. It's actually called the Magnificat. After the angel Gabriel appears and says, you're going to have a son, there's a little interaction. She goes and visits uh, Elizabeth, her relative. That confirms that she is going to have a son by the Holy Spirit. And then Mary writes this song that's it's one of the most famous songs ever written. And there have been many people who have said that this song is the most revolutionary document in the history of the world. And the truths that are contained in the song, they've, they've changed the world, and I believe they have the power to change your life and to change our lives. 
So we're going to look at this song under three headings. Mary kind of breaks her song up into three stanzas. The first stanza we could say was, could, could headline with the words, God looks. The second, God lifts. And the third, God keeps. God looks, God lifts, and God keeps. Mary begins her song, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Now, if you just come to these verses like we just did, it's, it's easy to kind of just, you know, they sound like something you'd read in the Bible, right? It's a lot of praise, it's almost sentimental in the praise. But if you, if you put these verses in their proper context, what Mary's saying here is actually pretty shocking. They're almost jarring. See, Mary, Mary's probably 14 years old. She might be even a little younger than that. Mary's betrothed to this man, Joseph, being betrothed is kind of like being engaged, except for you're considered legally married, uh, but, but the couple hasn't come together yet. And so she's betrothed to Joseph. She's 14 years old. And then this angel appears to her and says, Mary, you're going to have a son. And it's not from Joseph. It's from the Holy Spirit. And if you keep this in context, recognizing Mary was a human being, a real human being, she's 14 years old, she's betrothed, this news of the son is going to totally upend her life. Joseph's probably going to divorce her. Even if he chooses to stay with her, people, sooner rather than later, are going to start noticing the bump. People are going to start talking and people are going to think either one, she'd been with Joseph before marriage, which means she'd been unfaithful, or they're going to think uh, that she'd, or which, yeah, she'd been disobedient or that she'd been unfaithful. And so either way, this news for this 14-year-old girl is not good news in a lot of ways. It's disruptive. I mean, what's she going to say when people come to her and say, you're pregnant? What's she say? Like, well, there is this angel. I know it's going to be really hard to believe. This angel appeared. And I, no. Like, Gabriel's announcement to Mary is actually an invitation to a life of shame and disgrace. Gabriel's announcement is basically saying, you are going to be the mother of an illegitimate child, and you're going to be the talk of the town for the rest of your life. You're going to be looked on with scorn and with shame. And what's fascinating is Mary, she doesn't recoil at this. She doesn't, she doesn't push back and say, how could you do this to me? This is my life. She responds here in absolute praise at the depths of her being, my soul, my spirit. She's saying at the very center of who I am, I am rejoicing. Why? How's she rejoicing in the midst of this? She says, for God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The reason Mary is singing and shouting here, the reason she's celebrating is because she's saying, listen, God's looked on me. He's noticed me. She's 14 in a culture that didn't care much for women, didn't care much for young people. And here she is, she's saying, you know what? God, who's always been kind of distant, 
and a stranger? No, he's, he's looked on me. You have to remember, this has been, it's been 400 years since the people of God have heard from God. They're living as subjects in Rome, subjects of Rome. They're, their life isn't going all that well, and it had to feel like so many people that God was absent. God didn't exist, or if he did exist, he was very distant and he was very detached. And the reason Mary can sing in light of all of the, you know, the scandalous details here, she's saying, no, God's not absent. He's not distant. He's not detached. God's looked on me. She rejoices. There's a lot of parallels here with what we read in the book of Exodus at the beginning of Exodus. You know, the book of Exodus begins with the Israelites. They've been living as slaves for 400 years in Egypt. And they're suffering under oppression. They're beaten. They're marginalized. And God appears to Moses. And he says to Moses, I have seen my people's misery. I have heard their cries. I'm concerned about their suffering." The first big lesson from Mary's song, the first big lesson of Christmas is that God is not absent and that God is not detached. He is not withdrawn. That God looks, that God sees, he hears, and he's concerned. God is not blind to the suffering in our world or our lives. God is not a stranger to the heartache that we experience God looks, he sees, he cares so much that he actually gets involved. He enters in. Emmanuel means God with us. The reason Mary is singing here, first and foremost, is she recognizes God's gotten involved. So often I see people both inside the church and outside the church, they think of God as either absent, non-existent, distant, or detached. I think a lot of other people, they think, well, maybe he's not even all that distant, but when he looks on me, he looks with disgust or scorn or judgment or he's wagging his finger. And Mary here, she's saying, no, no, he looks and he's been exceedingly kind. Like he sees me with all of who I am and, and all of my junk and, and he doesn't wag his finger. No, he's going to bless me and he's going to do great things for me. So if you're here this morning, you think God's detached. The message of Christmas is he's not detached and he's not absent. Like he's present. He looks and he sees. And when he looks, he's not looking for people to judge or to damn. He's looking for people to save, to redeem, and to bless. Martin Luther, he once said that the incarnation is proof that God is not against us. God, he's not plotting revenge for all the wrong we've done. He's actively bringing about redemption. And this is why Mary sings. She's saying God's not against us and he's not, he's not absent, he's for us. God looks. The second thing she says is that God lifts. She says his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry 
with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. You know, a lot of people struggle with Mary's song because they wonder how a 14 or 15-year-old girl could write such a majestic piece of work. And the answer is because Mary knew her Old Testament. And almost every line in the Magnificat is a quote from the Old Testament. And because Mary knew her Old Testament, she knew that God coming to her, this 14-year-old girl, she knew this wasn't an aberration. This wasn't God doing something ridiculous and, and unlike other things that, have, that he's done. She knows that when God moves, he always tends to move among the humble and the hungry, the forlorn and the forgotten. It's hard. When you read the Bible, God rarely moves among the rich and the powerful and the elite. When God moves, he moves among the humble, the hungry, the forlorn, the forgotten. This is what we've seen in this series. Whether it's Tamar, the twice-widowed, unwanted daughter-in-law, it's Rahab, the prostitute, it's Ruth, the Moabite, the outsider, or it's Mary, the unwed teenage mom. Our God is a God, when he wants to do something dramatic and powerful, he tends to move in the margins among the marginalized. This is what the Christmas story holds before us. Jesus, when he's picking a hometown, you would think in that day, he'd probably pick Rome. If you want to reach the most people possible, you want to be in a prestigious place, you're going to go to Rome. Jesus doesn't go to Rome. He goes to Nazareth, which is a podunk town in the middle of nowhere. Nazareth is not a place you want to live in. It's not a place you want to visit. It's a place where if you do live there, you want to get out of there. It's like Harlan County, Kentucky. No offense if you're from there, but if you are from there, you're saying amen right now. Like you don't want to be there. There's nothing there but backwardness and backwards people, and there's nothing of, of, of splendor or majesty there. And Jesus says, you know what? Harlan, Nazareth, that's my hometown. And then he's looking around, he's saying, who's gonna be my mom? And he chooses Mary. She's young, as we said, she's poor. We know she's poor because when she goes and makes an offering at the temple after Jesus' birth, she makes the poorest offering possible. It was the one resolve for the, reserved for people who had the least amount of money so that at least they could bring something. That's what she brings. Oh, she's young, she's poor. She's a woman in a day in which women didn't have rights and couldn't vote. I mean, Mary, we talk about people being marginalized. Mary truly is marginalized. She's forgotten. She's someone that most of us, if we were to pass her on the street, wouldn't even think twice about her. And Jesus looks at her and he says, she, she's going to be my mom. God moves in the margins and he moves among the marginalized to show us something critical about the way to life with him. The theme of Mary's song, the Ark of the Bible that God lifts the lowly, but he scatters the proud. The gospel, Christianity, as properly understood in our, as understood in our culture, improperly, is that God blesses good people and he curses bad people. What the Bible says is, no, God lifts the lowly, but he scatters the proud. God honors the humble, but he scatters the prideful. 
And this, this is the offense of Christmas. This is the challenge of Christmas. When you read Mary's song, it's very clear that God is here to bless, but he's here to bless those who are humble, those who are hungry, those who fear him. You know, when you read Mary's song, when you read the Beatitudes, <laughs> when you read a lot of the Bible, you have to ask, does God hate rich people? Anyone ever read that? You read these things? What does God have against rich people? Does God have something against rich people? And the answer is no, but rich people tend to have something against God. God doesn't hate rich people. Rich people oftentimes tend to hate God. Here's what I mean. The more educated you are, the wealthier you are, the more powerful you are, the more confident you have, the more confident you become that you have what it takes, the more presumptuous you become in life. And so what happens among people who are doing really, really well, you either reject God outright, I have no need for him in my life, you keep him on the, the margins, you know, in case of emergency, break glass, but otherwise ignore him, or you try to partner with him. You know, with my money and my connections and his power, we could do an awful lot of good things together. And God, he's God. He refuses to be on the margins. He refuses to be a partner. And he refuses to bless people who reject him. The challenge of Christmas is God lifts the lowly but he scatters the proud and he, he upends the value system of our world. Soren Kierkegaard once said that the world is like a store in which all of the price tags have been confused. The world is a store in which all the price tags have been confused. And so we value and we, we count as very worthwhile and valuable things that to God are pretty worthless. And the things that God really cares about, they're in the dollar bin and we pass them over. Our world values money, power, connections, and fame. God values humility. God values those who fear him. And I know when people say, what is it, fear? What does it mean to, to fear God? Like we should live terrified of him? No, to fear God means to regard him as supreme, to acknowledge his commands, to submit yourself to his authority, and to obey him. To fear God means to say, you are God and I am not. So I'm going to do what you say. And what Mary's song says and what the Bible says is when you come to God with that kind of heart, he blesses. And this is why it is the poor, the broken, the sinful, the lowly. This is why it's those who've made an absolute mess of their lives. These are the lives that God tends to move in because they're not just potentially open to God, they're eager for God when your life's an absolute mess, and when you've got yourself in a mess you can't get yourself out of, you're eager to see God move. When your life's going really, really well, it's just really, really hard. And so if you're here this morning and you're lowly, if you're here this morning, you're discouraged. If you're here this morning and you feel like I shouldn't be in church because of my life, I know what I've done. I know what I'm doing. I don't belong here. I'm an absolute screw-up. I'm an absolute mess. If that's where you are, know that you are in a very good place. God loves to work with the lowly. 
But if you're here right now and you're well-fed, you're well-connected, you have a measure of comfort and wealth in your life, I know these words might feel like they're indicting you, but they're actually inviting you. God's not against people having stuff or blessing people. God's not against material possessions. But what God is after is the poor in spirit. And so the invitation here, the invitation is even if you're wealthy, you have to take the attitude of the poor if Christmas is going to be meaningful to you. Even if you have a lot, you got to take the posture of the poor if you're going to receive what's being held before us. See, the poor are not afraid to say, my life's a mess, I'm a sinner, I need the grace of God or I'm lost. The poor aren't afraid to say those things, the rich often are. The poor aren't afraid to believe in the supernatural. Jeez, the poor, they're, they're hopeful for the supernatural because their situations can be some, become so dire that they know the only way they're going to be lifted out of their situation is if God comes and does a miracle, and so they celebrate it. The well-to-do, we often think, ah, the supernatural, that's beneath me. I'm not going to believe any of that. You see, it's our position so often that keeps us from encountering God. It's our wealth that keeps us from encountering God. And this is why the great revivals in history, they always break out not among the rich and the powerful and the well-connected. They always break out among the poor because they're hungry. So this is a challenge, but it's also an encouragement that you don't have to have it all together this Christmas. You don't have to act like you've got it all figured out. We can be broken and we can be open. God says, that's where I like to work and that's where I want to move. God looks, God lives. Lastly, the last thing that Mary sings about is that God keeps. So God is not absent. He looks upon us. God lifts the lowly and the hurting. But lastly, God keeps his promises. Mary ends her song with the words, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Now, for us, we look at the birth of Christ and it seems like it's this something new. It's this new work of God. And I guess in, in some ways it was something new, but in more ways than not, it wasn't something new. It was something ancient. It was God coming through on a promise. And the reason Mary sings at the announcement of Christ in her womb is she's not just singing, you're going to save the world, which he is. She's also saying, you keep your promises, God. You follow through. Even though we've had 400 years of darkness, 400 years of not hearing from you, that doesn't mean that you've been absent, and it doesn't mean that you're unfaithful to what you say. She says, you've, you've been mindful, you've remembered the promises that you've made to Abraham. And in Genesis 12, God comes to this man, Abraham, and he says, Abraham, this world is an absolute mess but I'm going to make it right. And the way I'm going to make it right, the way I'm going to fix this place is through you and your descendants. I'm going to bless you and through you bless all the nations of the earth. It's a big promise. And the people of God sat on that promise for about 2,000 years. And then when the angel comes and makes the announcement to Mary, <laughs> she rejoices. She said, God, you keep your word. You're faithful. You know, because we live in a world 
where people lie all the time, where people don't follow through on their word, we struggle to trust. Like because we've been hurt, because we've been let down, we struggle to trust. And, and here's the word for you. Without trust, relationships suffer. And when you don't have trust, it's really hard to have a healthy relationship. It's hard to have a deep friendship or a healthy marriage if you don't trust the other person. It's not just hard, it's impossible. When you don't trust someone, you keep them at arm's length. And I think for us, because we've been hurt, because we've been let down, because we've been disappointed in life, we don't know how to trust. And oftentimes, we do with God what we do with other people. We try to keep him at arm's length, saying, I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know if he's going to come through. Now, we might do that in our hearts and the way we pray and approach God. We might do that with our lives, that we want him near, like we want him in, in the orbit, but we don't want to be close to him because we don't know if we can trust him. And the reason Mary can break out in this song is she's saying, no, we can trust him. God is infinitely trustworthy. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he make promises and not fulfill? You see, what Mary's saying here is God comes through. And to bring this really practically into your life, if you can't trust God, you're not going to grow in relationship with him. And a lot of you, your, your relationship with God is suffering because you refuse to trust. What Mary's saying and what Mary's inviting you to here is you can trust him. There's one who never lies. There's one who never fails to follow through. So one of the big messages of Christmas is not just that God cares, but that God keeps his promises. And wherever you are in regard, regards to God, you can move forward in relationship with him by trusting in him, grabbing hold of his promises. Promises like you, you've been forgiven of your sins, which means there's no condemnation. You trust that. Promises like you have peace with God and that he is always with you. Promises like he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But God keeps his word. Now, if God's so faithful to his promises, then why is life so stinking hard, right? Why is it filled with so much pain and heartache? And it's here that we get to the great tension of Advent. The big story of Advent is that God keeps his promises that's the big story God comes through. The great tension of Advent <clears throat> is that all of us are sitting on unfulfilled promises from God. And because we don't know what to do with that tension, we try to release it. We either keep him at a distance, we ignore him, because we don't know what to do with God. God keeps his word, but right now I'm sitting and I'm waiting for him to come through. God promises to heal, yet many of us are sick. He promises to wipe away every tear, yet many of us are sad. And so how do we trust God to keep his word when we're surrounded by so much darkness and while we're sitting on so many unfulfilled promises? How do we trust him? And the answer is we look to not just his birth, but we look to why he was born. Jesus Christ was born to suffer and to die. There's this quote by Dorothy Sayers, 
really spoke to me this week. She says, for whatever reason, God chose to make man, chose to make us as we are, limited, suffering, and subject to sorrows and death. She's saying, we don't necessarily know why God, God ordained that all this come to pass, that we live lives filled with so much heartache and pain. She says, but God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it worthwhile. The reason we can trust him, even when it seems like he's slow to keep his promises, is because God, God went to great lengths and he suffered great things to secure our salvation and bring us home. And if he went to that length to save us, to identify with us, to sympathize with us, then we can give him some slack when it doesn't always make sense, can't we? Because I don't, I don't totally get why you're doing things this way, but I do know you gave everything to save me so I can trust you. I love how Sayers ends this, the quote saying, Jesus didn't just suffer, it was worthwhile. She's referencing Isaiah 53 that Jesus saw the results of his suffering and he was satisfied. And so if God can take the great suffering his son went through and Jesus can look upon it and say, it was worthwhile. Why was it worthwhile? Because he got us. Because he went through everything to save us. And if he can say it was worthwhile, then we can trust him when he leads us into hardship and pain and suffering. God hasn't forgotten you, and he can't forget you, and he always comes through. And God's given us a meal to remember his promises to us. The night of Jesus' betrayal, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. He took the cup, said, this is the cup of the new covenant, cup of my blood that's been poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so communion's a time where we remember that even if we're sitting on unfulfilled promises of God, he comes through. He hasn't forgotten us. If you're here and you're a believer, we come to this table and we celebrate a God, a God who can be broken for us. So if you trust in Christ, we encourage you to come and to eat and to drink. The way we take part in communion here is we we tear off a piece of bread and we dip it in the wine or the juice, whatever your conscience permits. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ who came to this earth to save, to redeem, and to heal. Let me pray.